Right, go ahead with the logic. Okay, Mark, logic one and two, Mark. Houston, we are set. We have a cryo press light. Roger, copy, cryo press light. Uh, follow 11, this is uh, Houston. Minus 10, 9, 8. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello and welcome to Space Gen, the show where you find out all the latest from the space industry. You can catch our episodes on X-Ray FM every Wednesday at 8am or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and let's get into the news. So in space, a few years ago, for the first time ever, astronauts ate lettuce that had been grown aboard the International Space Station. Well, great news is that space lettuce was at least as nutritious as similar plants grown here on Earth. But what actually happened on the ISS? Well, they had red romaine lettuce plants and they were grown for 33 to 56 day periods between 2014 and 2016 in NASA's Vegetable Production Systems Zero-G greenhouse chamber and inside that little chamber it had LED grow lights and an automated watering system. Now there were three astronauts and they consumed the leaves each and the rest of the crop was kind of frozen up for subsequent transport back to Earth. It was then chemically and biologically analyzed by scientists at the Kennedy Space Center who compared it to romaine that had been grown in the center's laboratories over the same periods. Now keep in mind that the earth lettuce was raised under the same conditions matching the veggie chamber up in the ISS and that includes the temperature, carbon dioxide levels and humidity. Now overall, the Earth and ISS plants were found to be quite similar in composition. In some cases, however, the space lettuce was actually richer in elements like potassium, sodium, phosphorus, sulfur, and zinc, and it also contained higher levels of phenolics, which are molecules that have been shown to possess antiviral anti-cancer and anti-inflammatory qualities. Now interestingly, it had been assumed that the ISS lettuce would contain fewer types of organisms and importantly, no harmful bacteria, so you know, like E. coli or salmonella. They weren't found in any of the plants. So based on that, those findings, the space lettuce has been declared good to eat. Now, Dr. Gyoa Massa at the Kennedy Space Center said, the International Space Station is serving as a testbed for future long duration missions. Because remember, all of this that we're learning about the space lettuce, we're gonna have to grow this when we do go to Mars, which is happening pretty soon. So these types of crops, she was saying, they're helpful in finding out the suite of candidates that can be effectively grown in microgravity. Future tests will study other types of leaf crops as well as small fruits like pepper and tomatoes to help provide supplemental fresh produce for the astronaut diet. Very interesting. And going along the lines of interesting International Space Station stuff, for the final time, SpaceX's Dragon cargo capsule was captured by the ISS, you know, the Canada arm, delivering more than 4,300 pounds of food, experiments, and spare parts. Now, the future Dragon resupply missions are gonna be done using the new spacecraft design, and that's gonna automatically dock with the space station. 
But this unpiloted cargo freighter completed a two-day trip in orbit just to catch up with the ISS, and obviously successfully did the supply, and it marked the 20th time that the SpaceX Dragon cargo capsule has arrived at the space station since May 2012, which is a really good proof record, especially for working with NASA. They like to see a lot of reliability, a lot of missions. So the mission was known as CRS-20, or SpaceX-20, and it was the final flight for the first generation Dragon spacecraft, which the company is gonna be retiring, as we talked about, for the new Dragon capsule, which is designed to dock directly to the space station without needing to be captured by the Canada arm. Now, astronaut Jessica Meyer said that, quote, the SpaceX-20, or CRS-20 mission, is a milestone for several reasons. It is, of course, the 20th SpaceX cargo mission, but it's also the last SpaceX cargo vehicle captured by the Canada arm as future vehicles will dock automatically. And you know, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to go through what was actually packed inside the cargo load, because it's cool just saying, you know, there was supplies, and but what was really in there? Well, they had science investigations, and that was 2,116 pounds. They had unpressurized cargo, which is the Bartomeu, 1,032 pounds. They had crew supplies, which was only 602 pounds. Vehicle hardware, 483 pounds. Spacewalk equipment, which is 123 pounds. And computer resources, which was two pounds, probably like a USB or something. Now, after about a month in orbit, astronauts will load the research specimens and other cargo, and it's all tagged for a return back to Earth, into the Dragon spacecraft, which is scheduled to depart from the ISS and splash down in the Pacific Ocean, southwest of Los Angeles, on April 6th. Now, the return of the Dragon capsule next month will mark the transition to SpaceX's next CRS contract with NASA. And initially, SpaceX and NASA, they're not going to be reusing Dragon 2 capsules, especially for the crew missions. Uh, the cargo variant will qualify to fly to the space station and back to Earth up to five times. After that, that's it. Then it has to get scrapped or recycled. So very interesting. It'll be cool to see, especially the CRS-21 mission, which is going to be late this year. Now over at the competitor, Blue Origin. Now they've showed their new Glenn nose cone, and they can say that you can fit nearly 50% more payload than the next competitor, which obviously could be SpaceX or ULA. Now what their idea is, is to build one rocket plus a payload fairing, kind of in a combination to meet the needs of all customers, commercial, civil, national security, all of it. The fairing itself is 22 foot in diameter, and remember, the payload fairing, that's what's going to shelter the payload during the process of launch. It needs to withstand all the vibrations and all the other stresses. Once it's in orbit, the fairing just falls away in two pieces, and then the payload is released. And this is an important thing, because it doesn't matter how powerful a rocket is. Uh, if you can't fit the bulk of the payload in, it kind of makes it useless. And according to Blue Origin, New Glenn will feature a reusable first stage that apparently will last up to 25 missions. They also say that the rocket's going to launch 95% of the time for weather conditions, implying that launch schedules will be pretty reliable. The New Glenn will reach a towering height of 313 feet, which should dwarf something like a, you know, SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. 
It's almost, almost as tall as the Saturn V, but obviously it's nothing compared to the Starship. Now, it'll be capable of delivering 45 metric tons, almost a thousand pounds, into low Earth orbit. And initially, Jeff Bezos said that New Glenn would be ready to launch kind of around this year, but the company is saying that the first payload is going to be 2021. So either way, it's pretty soon, but currently they've only got the main engines and the payload fairing. So they're still working on the rest of the vehicle, but it should be done pretty soon. Now, moving on to NASA on Boeing. It's been a pretty rocky road between the two, and there was a review team and they studied the software glitches and other issues that cropped up during the unpiloted test flight of Boeing Starliner crew capsule that happened last December. And they've made 60 recommendations to make sure that all the known shortcomings are addressed before the spacecraft is cleared for another flight. Now, Douglas Lavero, who's the director of space flight at NASA, said he classified the instance as, quote, high visibility close call, which is a formal designation that kicks off additional government reviews. Now, in the meantime, he said the agency will make sure that the review team recommendations are fully implemented, but it's not clear how long that might take. He said, quote, quite frankly, right now, we don't know. They have to now come back to NASA with a plan how they're going to go ahead and address all those recommendations. We'll do our own inspection of the results of their work, and then we'll be in a position to decide whether or not we need another uncrewed test flight or not. So we're still a ways away from that, and I can't even tell you what the schedule is for making that decision, because it's very dependent upon what we see as Boeing's corrective action plan and the thoroughness by which we believe that the correction action plan has been implemented. So definitely we can kind of get a feel for this being a very rocky situation. Now, Jim Chilton, who's the VP at Boeing Space and Launch, said that the company will do whatever NASA asks. The company told investors earlier that it was taking a $410 million charge against pre-tax earnings in a large part to cover its possible cost of another test flight. He said, quote, for us, it's not that complicated. Boeing stands ready to repeat an OFT if required. There's not any intent on our part to avoid it. We just want to make sure that whatever we fly next is aligned with NASA's preferences. And of course, for all of us, crew safety is number one. And as we know, both Boeing and SpaceX have been building their piloted astronaut ferry ships for NASA under the commercial contracts, and that's valued up to 6.8 billion dollars. Now, NASA, they haven't released the list of the recommendations they had for Boeing, but Lovero said, quote, I want to make sure that everybody understands that we at NASA are taking this very seriously. We're going to make sure that at the end of the day, we can fly astronauts safely on Starliner. So that's pretty much it. Safety, number one priority. Everything else can take its time. Now, talking about something a little different, we already know Mars is pretty amazing, and we just got an image posted to NASA's Space Science Photo of the Day this week that just proves that even again more. Now, it shows a hollowed out mountain, and we've talked about, about this before, and it's called lava tubes. And they kind of create these skylights inside. Now, this happens from ancient volcanic activity below the surface of Mars. Now, on the western slopes of a shield volcano called 
Pelvonius Mons, the surrounding area shows some really amazing geological features. So there's like this long snaking lava tube, uh, there's fault features called grabbins, and obviously the large volcanic crater itself. But you're thinking, how do these lava tubes hollow out? And it's because sometimes lava flows, uh, they can solidify on the surface while continuing to flow below, so it creates that pipe. And once that flow drains out, it leaves behind this lava tube cave. And as time goes by, sections of the roof will collapse and it creates these skylights. And looking again at this particular skylight opening, it seems to be around 115 feet across. And that's pretty massive. Doing a digital terrain map allowed scientists to kind of calculate the volume of the material that drained through the tube. And based on the calculations, the rubble pile has to be at least 203 feet tall, which means that the pit itself had to be at least 295 deep prior to the collapse of the roof. And that's much bigger than any lava tube found here on Earth. And as NASA had mentioned, Massive lava tubes like this, they're quite exciting because they offer some protection from harsh radiation. And this means that they could be a really good site for establishing underground bases. But there's another thing. If we know that these are good places for us to be, for our own survival on Mars, what about alien life? Holes like this, they're very interesting because their interior caves are protecting kind of from the harsh surface of Mars. And that makes them great candidates for Martian life. Also, while the hole is pretty easy to explain, this Martian skylight does have a conical crater around it, which is not really understood yet. Now, it could mean that by fluke, there was a meteor and it landed and smashed through the roof of the tube, but we, don't, we still don't really know, so we'll just have to wait and see. The most interesting part is that all of the, even the SpaceX and you've got Blue Origin, you've got all these companies looking at where are the landing site's gonna be, and pretty much all of them choose near these lava tubes, which is quite interesting because a lot, even with NASA, when they were talking about, well, what would we put inside these lava tubes other than ourselves, people were saying, well, you can grow food in there, which kind of relates back to what we were talking about with the International Space Station, finding what green vegetable, what things can we grow in zero G or take with us to another planet. So these caves, it's very interesting. You know, you think about humans back in the way before we even evolved, how we lived in caves, we might just repeat those steps on Mars. Again, this is all news we just had in the last week. This is how quick things are starting to move, and as I've said before, we really are heading into a new space age. So if you like hearing about the news, make sure to tune in every Wednesday at 8am on X-Ray FM, or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and I'll see you next time.